Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 406. Well, that's right. And and also, I think for your staff um, and all the people that it takes to run a quality operation in a quality restaurant, I think of them as my coworkers. I mean, I'm working right alongside them. Um, if they don't feel like they have a larger purpose other than just driving your profitability, it's demoralizing to people. Um, so we wanted missions that embrace um, everything that we, that everyone can embrace. We do a huge amount of community work, you know, and nonprofit work. But these that's different from saying this is what we're dedicated to as a business. But yes, if you become totally obsessed with your numbers and that's it, that's how you make every decision is just based on the bottom line. Then you're just going to become a hollow. You might, you know, you might as well invest in a chain restaurant because what's the point of opening your own restaurant? Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. There is no time to waste in the restaurant business, especially when an opportunity comes up and you need extra capital. Cabbage created a simple, flexible way to get a line of credit of up to $150,000, apply online, and get a decision right away. Withdraw funds when you need them without reapplying. Cabbage has helped over 100,000 small businesses. Get started at cabbage.com slash unstoppable, and you'll get a $100 gift card when you qualify. That's cabbage with a K. Line of credit is subject to credit approval. See terms and conditions. Increase return visits by 200% with five stars. Five stars helps you build a database of your customers spend and visit behaviors. Five stars also helps you stay continually connected by automatically sending personalized offers and rewards. To learn more, head over to get.fivestars.com slash unstoppable or use promotional code unstoppable. And when you set up a demo, five stars will send you a $25 gift card to some of their favorite retailers like Target, Starbucks, Home Depot, and more. What are you waiting for? Get on it. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Chef Awida Michael. Chef, are you feeling unstoppable today? Uh, today, I am feeling unstoppable. <laughs> yes. I always feel unstoppable on sunny days, oh, beautiful days. Right? I oh, love it. Great. So uh, real quick before we get started, I got I to give a shout out to our boys over at Commonwealth Coffee or a cup of Commonwealth uh, for calling you out. I, I got so excited just reading and learning more about you. I know this is going to be a good one. No pressure. But my gut's telling me this is going to be a good one. Uh, <laughs> growing up in both Louisiana and Kentucky, Chef Awida, or I did it, Chef Awida Michael is a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America, wanting to cook food for those she loved and knows. Uh, combined with the desire to be more accessible, Wida returned to Kentucky where she would start her career as a chef and restaurateur. Today, Wida, alongside her husband, Chris, is the chef owner of seven restaurants located in and around Lexington, Kentucky. And obviously, we're just scraping the surface. I can't wait to dive into your story to find out m- more about who you are and what you're all about. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. Take it away. Uh, well, I, I have a couple that I like to use. One is um, this too shall pass. I think about that all the time when things get tough or even when things are great. Um, so this too shall pass. And I do, I have a little mantra that I say, which is 
I am safe. I love myself and I trust the process of life. So, and, and, and the last one, the final one that I do is, and I learned this, I think in my first class in chef school was attitude is altitude. That's a really corny old one from chef Peter Michael, who taught us skills development at the culinary Institute back 30 years ago. I think. What do you think he meant by that? Attitude is altitude. Well, I, I think it can be very difficult in the, to be a self-employed business owner um, and to add restaurants into that mix as well. It can, uh, it can, it can be a very stressful um, experience and maintaining a focus on what's positive and realizing that you're strong enough to, to make it through and to persist through what you're doing. Uh, is really important to your overall success. Yes. And it kind of reminds me of uh, the quote of, I don't know if it's a quote, but it's a saying I've heard a couple of times recently and I love it. And it's discipline is freedom. I feel like, you know, just yeah. working hard and, you know, showing up and you, it's getting ahead. I don't know. This maybe that's a little bit of a stretch, but I like it. <laughs> yeah, when you don't know what to do, you have to you can't stop. You have to if you if you're if you're bewildered and you and you don't know what to do, you still have to make progressive steps forward. Every little step you take, as long as you're going in the direction um of your goal, is gonna get you there, even if it's the smallest step. Mm. And sometimes I mean, that's what you have to do. Awesome. Uh, so where did it all start for you? When did you know that you're, you were going to devote your life to hospitality in, in the food and beverage? I, I, um, I started as a teenager. I loved restaurants and I was, I was drawing little plans. <laughs> I was drawing little plans for restaurants, but I cooked with my mom in the kitchen a lot as a kid. And then uh, as I became, as I went into high school, I started taking on more of the festival me- menus for our family. And then I started drawing little uh, restaurant plans. I, I can't remember the name of the first one, but it was a art gallery and cafe. That was my, my goal. That's cool. Um, I think when I was very young, I just started designing little restaurants. In college, I followed a different path, more uh, pre-law path. Um, that was, you know, in the early 80s. And um, everybody was becoming a lawyer in those days. Um, And so I didn't really think that owning a restaurant was possible or a career path for me when I was a young adult. Um, But as I completed my college education, I realized I was on the debate team at the University of Kentucky and we used to travel all the time and we would travel to these big cities and I really loved going to the different restaurants. So like you'd go to Chicago, you go to Greek town. Also there was tons of great Korean restaurants in Chicago, mm. Italian. So, and then, or you'd be in Boston and in those days legal seafood had just gotten started and there was all kinds of Indian restaurants. So I've kind of fell in love with restaurant culture through debate. I know that sounds a little strange. So yes, I moved to New York city in the summer of 1987, and I had two uh, good friends who um, were moving to the city as well, and the three of us rented an apartment together on 87th Street between New York and East End on the Upper East Side, and I opened up the New York Times and got a job in a macrobiotic restaurant, um, which is vegan, and I'm not, I'm not vegan, but I really learned a lot. Um, it was called the Health Pub, and it's still there on 22nd and 2nd. And uh, it was just a really great experience. And I cooked there. And then I, I got a job from there cooking for the Shakespeare in the Park Festival. So it was like this coming of age in Manhattan. 
I don't know if you can still do that in Manhattan. In those days, you know, we got our apartment for $1,500 a month. We each paid 500 bucks. You know, it was like, I'm not sure there's too much of that real estate left in the city. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it was a really formative experience. Um, I worked for a few years in, uh, two years in Manhattan and then applied to the Culinary Institute of America. And I met my husband, Chris, there on the first day of school. So what, and, I guess, what was it? Can you bring me to a moment where you, uh, was it during the, the, the debate that you were just like, I, I want to make my, my life all about hospitality. Like, can you bring us to a moment where you committed wholeheartedly to this career? You know, I think at first I didn't understand the concept of hospitality. I wish I had at an early age more. What I was interested in was straight up cooking. I loved, I loved cooking. Okay. I really liked the idea of working physically and, uh, I was tired with all the mental exercises. Yeah, I bet. Uh, I can only imagine with uh, so, the debate. Yeah. What? I mean, I was exhausted <laughs> from, yeah, inter- I was, I was tired of all the, the mental stress of debate. I mean, we won the national championship my senior year, so it was really a good time. It was a good investment of my time and I got so much out of debate, but I love, I still to this day love the aspects of working physically in the kitchen. I love, I love knife work. I love working on the line. I love, and I love that along with all the intellectual stuff of developing menus and um, personnel management, but it wasn't till later that I, uh, so I loved that experience and that was kind of what I was entering into in New York city. And then again, going through um, the, the CIA in Hyde park. And it wasn't until, you know, I don't think it was until after we owned the Holly Hill Inn that I understood what the word, even what the word hospitality means and what a a sort of what a spiritual virtue it is to me um at this time it's definitely part of who i am in a bigger way than just a business way um let's get into that later i feel like that's a good conversation for later but i want to kind of stay chronological so you you went to the culinary institute of america met your husband uh you guys graduate what year did you graduate 1991. Okay, 1991. So in 1991, um, you go back to Kentucky, right, with your husband? No, we stayed in New York and um, worked for a year and then uh, started a cross-country trip together. Um, And then Chris proposed to me on that trip, and we returned to Lexington in 1993. So what was the purpose Um, of the cross-country trip? Uh, we were looking for a place where we might want to live. I think both of us had decided that maybe New York wasn't going to be as approachable as we needed. We wanted to own our own business. We knew we wanted to own a restaurant and potentially open a restaurant. And it felt like it would be too difficult to do in New York city and in long Island, you know, just real estate, all the stuff you have to go through. It's very difficult there. So we decided to look and we, and we had friends getting married. We went to a winery in every state. We just kind of, Chris had never, his whole family for generations had been from New York. So he'd like never been camping, you know, he'd never seen the <laughs> West. So it's a lot yeah. uh, to show him. And um, yeah, so we just hit the road and it was a wonderful time. When we came back, um, it was, we thought we would just plan our wedding and work for a little while, uh, let him get to know my family and, then go either back to New York or to another community. But when I got back to Kentucky, I mean, my whole family was living here and I, I didn't really want to go back to New York city. 
And thankfully, Chris really liked it too. And 1993. So we've been back in Kentucky for, you know, 25 years now. Okay. So uh, it sounds like to you, uh, you you wanted to stay someplace where you had roots. Uh, And I guess the question is, why is it so important in your opinion to settle in an area where you know people and you love other people? Why is that so important? I had this idea that, and I got this from somebody else. I think I I, I was reading, um, uh, and I'm not sure exactly who said it, but I I like this idea of being a chef who feeds a community Mm. and being part of a community. I felt in New York, there's an anonymity that exists in New York City. I mean, and, and I think there is also a deep familiarity, but it's harder to make personal connections in New York City. But I... I had this feeling like I really wanted to cook for my friends and my family and that I could build a a community through food. And I was pretty uh, excited and interested in doing that. Um, And so for me, that meant being here in Kentucky. So why is personal connection so important to you? Why, why is that an important part of hospitality? Well, I go deep. Um, I go deep. So <laughs> be ready for it. I have <laughs> That's okay. I, I mean, I think hospitality means to welcome the stranger. I mean, that it is actually in the Bible as a Christian virtue. It is a deep, ancient. It's not just a Christian virtue. It's also a Muslim virtue. It's, it's, it, but it is part of our, uh, um, it's part of our Jungian spiritual experience. Um, and I also had this sense that I, I could maybe, I think you can do that in New York city. I guess for me, I felt like I could make a bigger impact mm. in my, in the smaller communities in Kentucky than I could in the bigger city of Manhattan. Um, what do you mean but by, I love, by impact? Like what, when you use that word impact, what do you mean by that? Mm. Um, well, to build community means to develop relationships with people. Um, for me, it means developing relationships with farmers and becoming friends with farmers and, uh, cooking their food. And it means, um, you know, I have customers where I prepared their 50th anniversary and then their 60th wedding anniversary. I had their wedding here and now they're celebrate their 10th anniversary here and, I have customers who have uh, had the wakes of their husbands here and also their anniversary husband. And so, I mean, it's like, this, it's a, the Holly Hill Inn especially is a place where it's sort of like these moments in life, these big moments in life. It's a part of those moments. Um, and those folks are very visible. They're not invisible to us. They're, they're visible. Their lives are visible. They're part of our lives. We're part of their lives. Um, I guess that's what I mean. I'm picking up. I love it. And I'm picking it up. And I, and I, you know, when I think of the word impact, I think of the word, just an effect. You, you get to have an effect, uh, a lasting effect on people in your community and to leave it better than it was when you came into it. And I think that's, that's what I like to think of when I hear the word impact. A lot of my guests use the word, I want to make an impact. Uh, and it's really interesting to, to, dive into like what that meaning means to other people, but I love your meaning of it. It's beautiful. Um, so you decide to, I guess, uh, open a restaurant in 2000 is when you, you bought uh, the location, correct? Um, that's right. In 2000, we bought our first restaurant, which is a 140 year old 
home, 150-year-old home, in, on the outskirts of a little town called Midway, Kentucky. And that first restaurant is the Holly Hill Inn. So, and uh, Chris and I lived upstairs. So we sold everything. We lived upstairs and ran the restaurant on the first floor. So what were you doing between 1993 when you when you got back uh, to Kentucky and 2000, that seven-year period, eight-year period? Yeah. What were you doing uh, we, to prepare yourself? Well, we worked at a variety of restaurants and catering companies in Lexington. And we wrote about four different business plans, all of which sort of didn't go. I mean, all of which were, so we, we had a lot of practice writing business plans and we sort of investigating that can be daunting for people oh, yeah. to write that first business plan. And so we probably wrote three or four of them went through the small business development um, offices and they were pretty much shot down. Like, okay, this, this plan here is not going to work. This plan's not going to work. Um, and, and we also, uh, we were the chef. I was the chef and Chris was the general manager for a big, restaurant that was just opening up on the outskirts of Lexington. So we had that experience. That restaurant was called Emmett's. It's sadly, it's no longer um, there, but it was a great project while it lasted. And it really showed us sort of how to go about opening a restaurant and gave us that experience. And also the work experience of being the two leads in a giant project like that. Um, So we were preparing ourselves. We were working the whole time, but we were preparing ourselves. Was that intentional? Do you think you took this job like we need to get the experience of opening and running a restaurant before we run our own? Was that intentional? I actually thought that we might stay at Emmett's for a really long time. We were there for two and a half years. um, And in the end, the owners had different vision of what the restaurant was than when we just had to part ways. But it it was good. It was fine. It all resolved out fine. But we also got the opportunity to buy the Holly Hill Inn and buy the property. Uh, and that's part of what made our business plan for the Holly Hill Inn succeed is that we, the family that was motivated to sell the Holly Hill Inn had owned it for a hundred years. And we happenstance, it was just through happenstance that we ran into the son. Um, he was writing an article about this restaurant Emmett's and he was in the restaurant and he said, to me in an interview said, well, you'll probably never leave this place. It's absolutely fabulous. And I'm like, well, I would never leave it except for the Holly Hill Inn and Midway, oh. which was because we had been driving by the Holly Hill. Inn. And he said, well, I own that with my dad, but we'll never sell it because the lady that runs the business there, she needs the, the income, et cetera, et cetera. And I, all I said to him at that time was, well, if you ever are interested in selling it, I hope you call us first. Oh, As man. fate would have it about three or four months later, the lady that was operating the Holly Hill Inn decided to get remarried and she wanted to divest herself of her business. And at that time, the family decided, well, if she's going to sell the business, we can sell the property. And they made us a fantastic deal on the property. And um, that's what made the business plan possible. What's the lesson in that? If you had to just take one lesson out of that, what is it? Uh, You never know where your next opportunity is going to come from. Um, and you, I am a big believer in envisioning, um, Mm. envisioning your goals, envision. I've done that my whole life, like thinking about how things would feel, look, uh, and going. Yeah. So I kind of, I, I have that in my head. Um, and I guess the other thing is, is that when you have the opportunity to buy the property that if you can get a great price on the property, it can help finance, some of the other aspects of opening a business just from a nuts and bolts business perspective. 
yeah. that the hard capital investment of the property can help finance some of the uh, other operational costs of the restaurant. Interesting. Or installation costs. And I think just also just, you know, manifest destiny. If you want something, if, if you desire something, say it out loud. Talk about it. Um, make it happen. Yeah. Don't keep it bottled in. When you say things out loud, when you write things down on paper, you're yeah. more than likely, you're, you're like something like, I don't know, like, I can't remember the stat, but you're like way more likely to actually do that thing and get it out there. Like people need to know what your intentions are because they might be able to help you. And if you never told this guy what you wanted right. to do, like he would have never came around and said, hey, just so happens yeah. it's available now. Awesome. Stuff. That's a huge, that is a huge lesson. I mean, that's a huge part of a, the, I mean, that's, Yes, that's my psyche, what you just mentioned there. I'm a big believer in establishing those long-term goals and in even short-term goals and thinking about them and articulating them and writing them down and daydreaming about them. Yeah. Yeah. All of that stuff. Awesome. So you also said you you wrote like three to four business plans before actually having one take, you know, uh, I guess. Yeah. Foothold. Right. So what did you learn uh, about all those rejections? I mean, I feel like that's the best way to learn is to fail or to come short. So how did you improve with each business plan? Yeah. Well, I mean, part of the part of the process of writing a business plan, I think a lot of people are so intimidated by writing just the sheer writing of a business plan that they decide not to do it. But we went through every step of it. I guess that's the the way we, and we had a good friend who was the president of a bank. And, and that's part of the reason we moved back to Kentucky was because a lot more people with a lot of expertise become more available to mm-hmm. you. Um, so he would sit down and review the plans with us and he'd say, you know, you're just not showing enough of a return. This is not how you write a P and L. This is not a performa. How did you project your sales? Uh, what, 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 what did you use to project your sales? Just really grilling us on all those questions, you know, that, and I think, I think for a while, I, I, I think that writing a business plan um, is a really vital exercise in how you articulate the goal that you were just talking about. It's not just about numbers, although it is. It does have a lot to do with your uh, projections and your performer that you're writing, but it is also about what your mission is, what your, you know, and articulating a mission. Um, that articulated mission from our first business plan has stayed with us for 17 years and we now have eight restaurants and it articulates the mission for all of our restaurants. Awesome. And I'm not sure if people always have a mission for their restaurant. Um, but thinking through that, I think it's, I think you need one and I I think it's vital to have one. I want to dive deeper into why mission is so important, but first uh, I want to mention, uh, just the numbers, uh, and it's so important. So would you say the first the first or second business plan, did you know the numbers? Were you coming up short? Did you not really, did, did they maybe not take you as seriously because you didn't know the numbers as well as you should well, have? I wasn't, I wasn't at the point where I was. Yes, I agree that they didn't. I don't think they, I didn't know how to come up with projected numbers because I had no history. And also it was the first time we'd ever written a performa. So we weren't as detailed as we needed to be. By the time we got to the business plan for the Holly Hill Inn, we were doing a, like a, we did an annual calendar and we projected sales for every single day we'd be open. Um, you know, we, our projections were wrong, um, in the end for the Holly Hill Inn, but at the same time, um, the, they weren't wrong enough. I mean, they weren't, they were still a guideline to go by and that immersion in how to come up with a detailed projection ended up, really co preparing us for how to deal with the financial stress of opening, you know, your first restaurant. 
A lot of what people don't understand is your pro projections are one thing, your cash flow management is quite another. And it takes a while to understand how to manage your cash flow um, and you know what that entails, but it's really, really important. Um, and it's and it's something that you know they don't teach you in chef school, and they don't. I'm lucky. I'm married to a really brilliant guy who loves numbers and is adept on the computer. And now at this point, we have a great bookkeeper. We have a great CPA. But it's, in the first, at, the, at first, we had we had a little CPA, a small CPA firm, local, and um, you know we did everything else ourselves. Uh, so it, it it you have to really know your business and like doing these numbers, you have to be immersed in your numbers and your purchases. And by numbers, I mean, in your purchases and in your sales and your, in your costs. Um, there's no getting around that. So how did you, how, how did you learn? I'm sorry to cut you off. Did it, do you want to finish no. thought? Uh, how, how did you learn? Where did you go to really figure out the numbers? Cause I, I'll be honest, like this is some, this is an area that I'm not strong in person. And this is one of my weaknesses. I'm not, I'm not a number guy. I'm a, I'm a people person. Right. So where did you go to learn more about these numbers yeah. and to really figure out how to do it right? Well, I think some of the, some of the, yeah, I think the small business development office and all those business plans that got shot down at first, uh, that was a good start. Um, to, to getting us to start that made us realize, Oh, this isn't just, Oh, I, I want to open a restaurant. That's not what this is about. This is about business. What is business? <laughs> Jeez. Uh, but then um, working at Emmett's restaurant also got us more in tune with, you know, what is our food cost? What are our monthly numbers look like? What do our weekly numbers look like? What are mm -hmm. our daily numbers look like? Getting that into a practice mm -hmm. that really, really, change that really gave us that kind of an experience but to be honest with you we learned a lot of these numbers and reporting um kind of through the school of hard knocks i mean the trial and error holly hill in <laughs> yeah well a lot of error a whole lot of error and you know we had to close a restaurant we opened a restaurant we had uh, opened the holly hill in and then we opened a small sandwich shop while a station and so we're things are perking along and we decided to open a restaurant called Cleveland's in Versailles. We didn't think about, we didn't do the same kind of work we needed to do on the projections that we had done on the other restaurants. And we ended up paying way too much money in rent. And, you know, the sales were, we weren't, our costs were way off. We weren't, we weren't just not, we didn't have the systems we needed in place to monitor food purchasing um, by the guys that were working in the kitchens. So we had to close it. And that was the most difficult thing I think either Chris or I have ever had to do. And we learned a lesson, that, a painful lesson, um, that you, no matter what, in the end, it's your business, no matter who, who the chef is, who the general manager is, and you have to monitor those purchases and you have to you know, make those hard decisions. And there's no getting around about it. I mean, you if you're going to be sustainable and we're big into sustainable ag agriculture and sustainable um, uh, operational practices. And our business also has to be sustainable financially or, you know, all our people lose their jobs. And you have to really think about that. It's that you're an employer and you have a responsibility to a safe and dependable workplace. Chef Wida, I'm writing like a madman over here, taking notes. I love what you're giving us. Uh, I did not forget about the the whole topic around mission statements, which I think we should go into now. And then I want to come back into scaling your business and 
creating those systems and what you did to set yourself up for maybe the third or, you know, the, you had your first restaurant, uh, you opened your second restaurant, it failed, what you did differently, how you learned about systems and processes and all that stuff. But first, why, why is it so important to have that mission? You mentioned the importance of having that original mission and staying with it. What was the original mission? Let me ask you that first. Well, our original mission was to create a place of welcome for all. And um, I mean, a big part of our mission state, I don't have it, like I can't read it to you right now from where I'm sitting because I don't have it right in front of me. <laughs> but it, it was to create a sense of welcome for all people uh, and to create great, we, we work on a, creating great service, great food, and um, we wanted to use local agriculture. And that was a big part of our mission statement was to um, be a part of the local agricultural economy in Kentucky. And there was a reason behind that at the time, you know, at the time um, the tobacco settlement was um, uh, happening in the United States. And there are lots of small farms in Kentucky that were really dependent upon um, tobacco money. And the U S the department, the farm bill used to subsidize tobacco. It doesn't any longer. Mm -hmm. Um, But those farmers really counted on that. And Kentucky is fourth in the country in small family farms. And the reason we have so many small family farms is because of, uh, our tobacco crops. So at that time, um, just like people are so worried about there being a war on coal today, uh, there was this a huge amount of concern about there being a war on tobacco. The Kentucky Department of Agriculture took the tobacco settlement funds, at least half of those funds, and put them into a diversification program and really started helping farmers with grants diversify into fruits and vegetables and um, we wanted to be a part of that. And that, that's a huge part of our mission is to increase farm income in, in Kentucky. Um, awesome. Uh, beautiful I mission. I think it's very important <laughs> to have a – yeah. Oh, thanks. Okay. So why is that mission so important? It's a beautiful mission, but how has that helped steer you? How has that helped keep you on track? Um, the mission keeps us on track because it helps all of our employees know every day what their goals are. Um, so in the cooks with our menu development, with all of our chefs and cooks, you know, our goal is to provide great service that's locally sourced as much as possible and to increase farm income for our, for our service staff. Our goal is to make every person who comes in our door, no matter what restaurant it is, as welcome and happy as possible. That's our goal to create happiness and a sense of welcome for everyone, no matter who they are, no matter what they look like and no matter where they live, whoever they are. Beautiful. So I guess, why is it so important to have that in place? Have you ever drifted? Did you ever get need to get recentered? Like when has that really served you in your your business? Oh yeah. Well, I think a lot of businesses can, because it's business, uh, a lot of businesses can just be constantly focused on the economic bottom line of their business because, you know, if you don't have good financials, you know, you could lose your business. So what you can become, you can become obsessed with profitability and obsessed with food costs to the point where you cut, you're cutting and cutting and cutting and you can never, you can never cut your way to success, right? It's this delicate balance of sales and quality. And, you know, so these mission statements help you also become larger than your bottom line. If Mm. we're all just about money, there's a, I should, I'm not going to use profanity. I almost did. (laughs) You wouldn't be the first. (laughs) There's a million other, (laughs) 
<laughs> there's a, there's so many other ways that are much easier to make you know a lot of money than sinking all of your money into a restaurant. They're especially locally owned and operated restaurant that you know there's a million things that you could do with the amount of money that I've spent on these restaurants that would have made me a, a much better return. But my passion and my life is around uh, food and creating memory and creating emotion and uh, you know it's I'm I'm a lucky individual that gets to do what I do. Yeah, we mentioned earlier that the the power of numbers and knowing your numbers and and it is super important, but you can get too caught up like you mentioned and you can lose sight as to why you did it all in the first place and at the end of the day i mean we're selling experiences we're selling the human part of all this and if you lose right. sight of that then you you got no foothold you lose traction and no matter how well you know your numbers if people don't love you and like you and if you don't love and like them and you don't have a higher mission driving the the beast the the engine then you're going to you're going to run out of steam eventually um well that's right and and also i think for your staff um and all the people that it takes to run a quality operation in a quality restaurant i think of them as my coworkers i mean i'm working right alongside them um if they don't feel like they have a larger purpose other mm. than just driving your profitability it's demoralizing mm-hmm. to people um so we wanted missions that embrace um, everything that we, that everyone can embrace. We do a huge amount of community work, you know, and nonprofit work, but these, that's different from saying this is what we're dedicated to as a business. But yes, if you become totally obsessed with your numbers and that's it, that's how you make every decision is just based on the bottom line. Then you're just going to become a hollow. You might, you know, you might as well invest in a chain restaurant because what's the point of opening your own restaurant? Yeah, beautiful. I love this. And uh, you also mentioned uh, visioning earlier, and uh, you just mentioned with missioning with the mission. You're using that to empower your employees. How are you using your your uh, your desire, your your uh, I guess your tendency to do a lot of visioning? Do you use that to inspire your employees too? Uh, I mean, I I think my visioning is for me more personally, but I mean, that's an interesting point of trying to, but we, we, we meet weekly with each, I meet weekly with each staff from each restaurant and we, you know what? I mean, I wonder, I've never put it to them that way. Typically we talk about how's, you know, what's happening with your personnel. How are your, how are your, we, we use a three bottom line system where to help us with our implementation of our vision, which is great food, great service and great financials. We want all three of those to be strong not just one of them. Um, so we, it's like a three-legged stool for us. So we talk a lot about that. Um, but we really talk a lot about, are you connecting with your guests? Are you making them happy? Mm. You know, do you see smiles on their faces? That's the main reason we're doing this mm. is if we're, if we're spending all this time, all this human energy and all this money to make people unhappy, we need to stop doing it. It sounds almost like you have unwritten core values that kind of echo uh, daily throughout your team. Is that safe to say? Yeah, I'm awesome. sure. I mean, a lot of them are written. <laughs> but, That's good too. But That's even better. They're spoken. They're spoken. Your mission and your core values and your passion, those are, that's your oral history. If you want to think about it that way, mm-hmm. if they're only written down and you're never talking about them, then they're dead. So they're only valuable in, in terms of how you communicate with your staff if you're talking about them all the time. Mm. And I see that as my major role in our company. I talk about them daily, every day, all awesome. the time. I want to spend some time talking about how you've grown your business and how you've scaled. Uh, you mentioned earlier that 
at with the first restaurant, you went to open a second restaurant and uh, you didn't have the systems in place. Uh, and you, you, I mean, I don't want to put too many words into your mouth, uh, but yeah. let's, let's take it from there. Like you, you're doing well at the first location. You decided to expand. What, in your opinion, didn't go well? And what, what are you doing differently today to, to be able to manage seven restaurants? Well, I think when we opened the, actually it was our third restaurant that failed. So, and it was, we, I think we felt our first two restaurants were doing fairly well. And I think we felt confident and there was an opportunity there. It was nearby. Um, we liked the location, but we didn't really delve enough into the projections and we didn't spend enough time on the key personnel, on the management personnel. Um, we didn't spend enough time picking the right management personnel for the project. Um, and the costs were just way too high. We didn't negotiate their leases correctly. Uh, we didn't use the right margin on the lease. And um, so the restaurant had to be closed. Uh, and that was, you know, a very difficult decision. And um, How- it also jeopardized all of our entire company, you know, to close one restaurant. It's not an easy thing. I'm going to interject real quick because I just want to ask, how did you know it was time to close? I think a lot of people hang on too long uh, and really just get themselves into a spiral death spin and they can't come out of it. So how did you know it was time to back up before it got too far? I might have hung on too long. I mean, but I I felt like that when you feel like, well, I mean – we had accumulated a lot of debt around the restaurant. We felt like we couldn't get our food costs under control and that the management wasn't responsive enough. And we didn't see how to pull the restaurant out. Um, and when you start to feel like, when you start to feel like things are really deteriorating or getting beyond your control, I guess that's the way I felt about that restaurant. And I didn't see how to bring it back in line. And I've, there were some other extenuating circumstances Um you know, there was a lot of drama. There shouldn't be a lot of drama for a good business operation. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, Chris and I both felt like, okay, we can't handle these expenses any longer. And there's way too much negative drama going mm. on. We need to, and we can't, we tried for a long time to solve it, but we realized, okay, this is not working. We need to, we need out. Our lease was up and there was no penalty to leave. And so we immediately checked out at that point. So what did you learn about managing people and handling people and relationships to uh, affect the drama for future restaurants? How did you change going forward? Um, well, I don't hire people that have not worked with me. Um, that's not, that's not true. That's not true altogether. But I, um, in the kitchen, I like to promote from our existing organization into chef positions um, for the general management positions, uh, I mean, the interview process became a lot more important. Um, and Chris and I kept stronger, tighter controls on purchases. Um, and we opened two more restaurants after that one closed. Um, and then we hired a, a director of operations who's now become a partner of ours. Um, and he came with a great deal of um, uh, multi, you know, he came from a company, a big, a big uh, chain restaurant company. So he was used to running multiple um, restaurants and he helped us install 
um, and operate uh, some new systems. And we use now a weekly dashboard and uh, invoice logs. We changed CPAs and went to a bigger CPA firm that also helped us get to, you know, so that now all the managers log their invoices. They're all logging their purchases. They all have um, uh, declining budgets, which are based on sales projections from the week before. Um, They say, okay, this is how much we sold last year on this week. So this is, you know, this is what your budget is. Hopefully we can be 10% up from that. You can't spend any more than this on food, you know, so we can manage the cost of sales that way better. We also brought all the restaurants together under one umbrella for our broadline distributor. So before it was like, because we have a variety of different restaurants and they're not all the same restaurant. They're all different little concepts. Um, our broadline distributors were treating each of them as like their own account as their individual account, but you get to, you get a lot of um, efficiencies and benefits by saying, Oh no, all of these restaurants are one group. I mean, if I'm paying this, this price for mayonnaise here, I want to pay the same price for mayonnaise at this location and that location, the other location or butter or whatever it is. I don't want to, I shouldn't be paying more here than I am over there. And so that helped a great deal too. All right. So I've got a couple of things, a few things written down here. It was tough to keep up with you, but you gave us great stuff. Uh, the first thing you did, uh, you started promoting from within. You started getting people that had your culture and you knew you, you knew and trusted. You, you gave them opportunities. Uh, why, right. why is it so impactful to promote from within and to provide opportunities for people? Well, I mean, you, your best people, you want them to feel like they're progressing, you know, that they're, that they have the ability to advance. Um, and they've earned it. And also it's the joy of it's as I get older, I mean, it's a great joy of mine to see a young mm. chef who started with me at 19 and is now, you know, moving into their mid twenties and they're the chef of this, of the new restaurant or they're the chef of the Holly Hill Inn and they're taking these projects on and uh, succeeding. I mean, and now, you know, I'm, I'm hope I'm hopeful they'll st- their star, their chef star will really rise inside um, you know, as from being affiliated with our our restaurants and being the chefs in our restaurants, I think that's super important. Earlier, you said you want to make an impact, and to me, sister, that is making an impact. Taking a young person, uh, giving oh, them yeah. skills and knowledge and the ability to grow every day and have opportunity. And we as humans. Yeah need that sense of growth we need to know that we're showing up every day learning new things being better things get stale we will go other places if we if we feel like we're in a stagnant point you need to challenge your people empower them and make them to the point where eventually someday they can replace you and that sounds like you know it sounds like that's what you did you you replace yourself with other people by empowering them oh yeah absolutely I mean, that's what allows us to grow. And Mm. I think um, not just them, but myself. I mean, I'm 53. I'm not as good. I can't be a line cook at 53. I mean, I could, but I just wouldn't be as good as I used to be. I mean, I I realized a few years ago, I I expedited my lines. I expedited my lines for 25 years. I realized five years ago, hey, my whole staff is stressed out when I'm expediting their line. And it's because I'm a bitch when I'm expediting the line because I'm not that good at it anymore. Mm. I got to wear glasses. I don't know. You know, you just change as you age. And we all have jobs that we're really great at. And I realized I'm ignoring all these people around me who are so gifted at what they do. Yes. I need to let them shine and I need to change what I'm doing 
so that they can shine now mm. and I can move forward and do other things. You know, I can, I mean, we ended up opening a, a big new restaurant, but we can, I'm looking at writing my cookbook and I mean, my life needs to change. Their lives need to change. We all, we are, there's freedom in that, in that change. There's freedom for them to succeed and not feel constrained at the top. You can never have a lid on the top of where your personnel can go. I mean, they have awesome. to feel like the sky is the limit yes. and I have to feel that way. I'm so happy. I didn't let yeah. you breeze over that part. Cause uh, there was so much great advice in there. So like we just mentioned, uh, promoting from within, you started paying more attention to who are more, I guess, more time, more energy into interviewing and getting the right people on your team. We don't have to dive too much into that. Uh, purchasing control. Um, I mean, is yeah. this, is this more Chris's subject? I don't know if you want to go into it too deep or. Well, well, Chris does all of our, he does all of our financials. Doug Mullins is our director of operations. And he, for the last three years, has really focused on uh, the nuts and bolts of the systems and, you know, the reporting and your, you know, he, we, but we review each week with every team at each restaurant, what their cost of sales are currently, what their labor cost is for the previous week, what it was last year, what their four week average is. And like I said, those are very important parts of that weekly touchback with every management team. Um, and they know they're going to be accountable at that meeting. But we also talk a ton about like, you know, service issues, special programming, you know, so that's where um, we really have to, we articulate all those parts of the financials. We have them open so they can see them and where they are. We don't have a closed financials. We have open financials. And then we come back and delve more and more into like, you know, how, you know, facility management, all of that stuff. But the, those meetings are really important for your mission to come back over and over and over again. You know, awesome. how are people feeling at work? If you don't have happy employees, you're not going to have happy customers. You know, what's, and everybody has ups and downs. Believe me, it's, it sounds a whole lot easier and better than it actually is. <laughs> Sometimes there are really a lot of days. Awesome. Uh, this is great. And uh, so you said Doug, was he the DO that you guys hired? Yes. So you, how, how many years into the business, what you guys opened in 2001, how many years into the business did you hire? Did it take you to hire Dio? Uh, Oh, I mean, probably 14, 14 years. And when he came, how many restaurants did you guys own when he, when he came on board? We owned, um, uh, let's see. Let's see. I, I think six. Okay. Six. So yeah. one of the things you said he helped you do was to install systems uh, to, con- to to kind of control everything. So what were the key systems uh, that he installed that you think had the biggest impact on your operation? I think one of the biggest things that we did right away was we started with this dashboard. It's just, it's, it's not a technology. It's just that it's a reporting process um, whereby all the managers are expected to report their purchases with their, um, uh, invoice logs and uh, their labor. We, 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 we could pull, he pulls some of those numbers off of their point of sale systems. Um, we, and, but some of them they report to him and then he creates a dashboard for all the restaurants and those numbers are reported back to each management team. So is this a dashboard that he created personally, like a, like a spreadsheet right. that he developed? Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. He set, he set up a dashboard and he, and then, and set up that process and everybody's numbers are due by Tuesday morning. Yeah. Uh, each week. 
And then um, the other thing that I, th a couple of other things, you know, then he negotiated with our broadline distributor to bring all the pricing in line and have a transparent ordering system so that he can see all the invoices on his computer that everybody orders. So he had to impose some discipline. I think Eric, you said discipline is freedom, right? So yep. <laughs> he had to impose some discipline like, okay, we're not going to, we're not dictatorial in the same way that some chain restaurants are, but if you guys are using mayonnaise, you're using this mayonnaise. Okay. Mm. Does everybody like this mayonnaise? So he took all the purchasers, you know, he takes them to food shows and they vote on stuff like, does everybody like this olive oil? Okay. All the, all in favor of this olive oil say aye. So that means we're buying this olive oil as a company. You can't decide later to go rogue and not get this olive oil because that's how we negotiate pricing. And we did that by doing that. We were able to, because we want to protect our local purchases and we don't negotiate with our farmers, right? We rely on them. We don't browbeat farmers down in their price point. Um, unless I think they're really uh, uneducated yeah. about the market. And that has only happened one time. And I've just said, uh, you know, this is, and then I just, I, at that point, I just say here, you guys need to know this is what the market is. Yeah. So, okay. Um, um I'm, I'm loving this. Um, we, I just look at the clock. We got to start wrapping up cause you, you have a hard stop in a, f a few minutes. Uh, but before we move to the speed round, um, how big do you want to get? I'm curious because you have all these values on sustainability and supporting local businesses. And uh, you, you've already mentioned uh, you had to say, you know, stick with one type of mayonnaise and one type of olive oil. So now you're starting to really kind of almost not, not restrict. I mean, you haven't really gotten there yet, but the bigger you get, the more restrictions you're going to have to create to stay um, disciplined. Right. So right. how big is too big? How big do you want to get? Uh, well, um, I, I have, I think one, one restaurant left in me and that is, uh, that's the only, uh, and that restaurant is in this restored courthouse in the middle of Lexington that a friend of mine is doing. And that'll be the last one. I mean, I, I feel like I'm a little, I, we opened a big restaurant this year that I I'm so in love with. And the point of that growth uh, was to show people that you can be a restaurant group and you can run large and small restaurants and you can still order local food. Mm. And so there's this big myth, uh, at least in this area of the country that like, uh, Oh, well, yeah, you were able to, you were able to buy from your local farmers because you just were running this little Holly Hill Inn, you know, fine dining restaurant in the middle of the country. So yeah, it's not hard for you to buy local eggs and local cheese and blah, blah, blah. And so in response to that, there was this, there was this also this, this mantra that like local food is the, the fine dining is the prison of local food consumption, right? We hear that all the time in America, like, well, yes, local food, it would be great, but it's, it's part of a big food justice issue. It's too expensive for everyone to, to afford. So then we started opening these sandwich shops to prove that no, actually everybody can afford to eat a locally produced hamburger that's produced by a farmer in Kentucky, no growth hormones, no antibiotics, you know, just beef. Yeah. And uh, so then we, then we did that. And now we have, a, we opened a big restaurant um, this past year, this, this year we opened them in May to show that, yes, you can open a big restaurant. It can be part of your P and L and you can consume and farmers can produce the food for your restaurants and your customers can consume local goods, even in the middle of a big development, even in the middle of a big restaurant. Yeah. I, you know, and, I, think, um, I think we have one more left and then that'll be it. 
Awesome. Uh, I think a lot of it too has to do with just general education, educating the, the public on what real food costs. We've gotten so far away from what real food is that we just th- assume that everything should cost that, you know, whether right. it, uh, and if you look at that, there's a book called uh, the, the, ta- the town food saved and they, they get into the numbers like 50, 40, 60 years ago, whatever it was like the average income was spending like 52% of their income on, yeah. on food. And today it's like 12%. So it's like, yeah. what, what are your values? Like, where are you putting your money? What do you have in your life that you need that you don't need where you can't support your community? Um, I don't know. This is, we're getting off topic. I mean, we're on topic, but I agree, uh, <laughs> but I agree uh, with that. You need to call me back. We need to have a yeah, show about right? that <laughs> because so. I got a lot to say about that. <laughs> so this has been great up to this point. Has there anything we haven't, is there, is there anything we haven't discussed up to this point in the free flowing conversation that you're hoping we would touch on that you want to mention before we move on? Oh, I don't think so, Eric. I mean, my, I guess my biggest thing of advice is just to try to do everything with a lot of love and don't give up. Awesome. Great stuff. We're going to take a quick break to thank um, our sponsor. Dreams are. And uh, we'll be right back. To be unstoppable, most restaurant owners require extra capital from time to time. When you need funding to renovate, buy equipment, or manage cash flow, you don't have time to track down financial statements or wait weeks for a decision. That's where Cabbage can help. Cabbage gives small businesses access to a line of credit of up to $150,000. Apply online and you'll get a decision right away. Since Cabbage is a line of credit, you can take the exact amount you need. You never have to reapply to take out additional loans and you only pay for the funds you use. Cabbage has helped more than 100,000 businesses from every industry with over $3 billion in funding. Cabbage is A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau and was named a Forbes Top 100 company twice in a row. Check out Cabbage with a K.com slash unstoppable and you'll get a $100 gift card when you qualify. That's K-A-B-B-A-G-E dot com slash unstoppable line of credit is subject to credit approval. See terms and conditions. Have you heard of the 80-20 rule? Well, if you haven't, it states that for many events, roughly 80% of effects come from 20% of the causes. How does this apply to the restaurant industry? Roughly 80% of your total revenue comes from 20% of your customers. That 20%, well, those are your loyal customers. Five Stars helps you get more loyal customers and helps you strengthen the bond between existing loyal customers. This method is so effective that Five Stars users have reported up to 200% increase in revenue. Set up a demo today and learn about their two newest features. Word of mouth, which allows your guests to share the rewards they earn at your restaurant with their friends and network matching, where basically if you get a hundred customers to sign up, five stars will send you 100 new customers that have never been to your restaurant. To learn more, head over to get.fivestars.com slash unstoppable or use promotional code unstoppable. And when you see a demo, five stars will send you a $25 gift card to some of their favorite retailers like Target, Starbucks, Home Depot, and more. Get on it. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor? A habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? I write lists constantly. Mm -hmm. I keep a book of lists of things to do every day. I list everything. What is your biggest weakness? I can, I sometimes don't listen. Ooh, 
how are you better <laughs> at that? Have you gotten better? I work on that every day. How do you work I, on that? I've, I tell myself in meetings to shut up and listen <laughs> mentally. I just, in my mind, I'm like all the time. I've been, I've read a lot of articles on, you know, leading from behind um, and how quiet leaders can sometimes have the best collaborations. So making myself shut up and listen. I say that to myself all the time in meetings, shut up and listen, shut yeah. up and listen. And it, earlier today, I, I almost went into it, but I, I tapped on the brakes because I wanted to leave time for the, the speed round. Um, here I am going in there anyway. You, you, just the idea of uh, using all these systems to track, right? Uh, the, the the income, the dashboard. And it's like the the whole trust and track uh, Nick Cirillo concept of uh, you've got to really just track and that part of that tracking is looking at data. The other part of that tracking is just listening to your people and talking less, listening more, getting that data, that information, so you can make the right decision and fully understand the big picture. It's first seek to understand, then seek to be understood, right? I agree. And I think I get a lot of, I just try to hang out at the restaurants where I try to have time where we're not in a meeting where I'm just listening, I'm watching, I'm talking to everybody that wants to talk to me, but I'm also just trying to watch and listen and just be present. And I get a lot of information that way, but I, I couldn't agree with that more. Beautiful. What is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? I actually look for, um, I don't have a single question. Um, one of my questions for general managers or managers that I've, I'm interested in working with is, you know, have you ever closed a restaurant before? Um, because I want to know if they've been through that pain um, and what they thought caused it and how they handled it. Um, and two of my most successful GMs have. So that's what I'm really looking for. But I'm looking for heart. I look for goodness first and train. Now, when you're talking about a general manager, you need experience, but I am looking for heart. Heart and soul. I'm looking for goodness. Hire for attitude, train for skill. I love it. I know it. that sounds. Yeah. <laughs> What's a current challenge you're dealing with today? Um, we have opened our first restaurant in a big development, and our current challenge is how to make the restaurant super visible and compelling um, inside. Of a, of a development situation where there's lots of different distractions, et cetera, for people who are going there. Okay. And how are you overcoming that challenge? Well, we are working on our programming and trying to make everything we do like super unique um, and, and educational as well as entertaining. So like bourbon tastings, um, we did rewrite the menu and broaden the menu. Um, we're working on some like the making sure the chef is more visible in the dining room, redesigning the menu a little bit with a little bit more energy um, in the layout and the graphics. Um, and, and we're doing a little bit of advertising mainly on public radio through underwriting um, and emphasizing our sort of the local nature of our food in an environment where there is no local food. Beautiful. And, uh, Share one code of conduct or behavior, uncommon code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. And this is like a core value, a way to be, a way to act, a way to behave. One of our core values is that we have to care for each other as a staff. And um, I, I, I did a lot of reading about that a few years ago, too, that if you demonstrate care and concern as the leader, then it becomes okay for your 
um, staff to, de- to de- demonstrate care and concern for each other. So that is what we cultivate. I think the restaurant business can be really hard, uh, kind of a cutthroat business. And I think that sometimes restaurant employees can be seen as disposable. Um, and I want to create the opposite environment for my staff. And so we really do care and concern for others is a big part of one of our values. Beautiful. And what's one uncommon standard of service you've developed and teach your staff? This is like, um, for the example I give is when you approach a table and you're holding something in your hand that doesn't belong to that table, you hold it behind your back. This is an example of really uh, providing a standard of service uh, that most people don't do or know of. Oh, I really like that. So you, <laughs> so that they don't see the food and get jealous. Yeah, That's or if you have like a dirty plate or something in your hand. Like oh, you yeah. Behind, yeah, exactly. Right. Well, I don't know how much is unusual. We use what we call STPs. Do you know what an STP is? Uh, it's a silverware transport plate. Have you ever? I haven't. And no, I'm not familiar. I, so that is an old culinary institute thing. But so we—that's one of the jokes in our company—is that I can't stand anyone. I can't stand to see anyone handling silverware with their hands. It doesn't matter if it's a casual restaurant or a a fine dining restaurant. So we use plates, a silverware transport plate to transport all of our silverware on. Um, So I have those, but we do a happy, you know, we do celebrate birthdays and anniversaries with chocolate written on the plate with cards that all the staff signs. So for every guest who comes celebrating something, we give them a a card that has all of our staff's signatures on it. Um, yeah. Share one online resource or tool. This could be a website, an online magazine, anything you use to learn or to leverage, I don't know, like a like an app or whatever. Yeah. Right now we're kind of experimenting with that Slack app. Um, I you know, you can add, I don't it's an app that allows you to invite people on so it's like an instant message yep. amongst a group of people. So we're experimenting with that and we're experimenting or implementing hot schedules. We had implemented hot schedules at one location. We're kind of implementing it across locations. Uh, we're in the middle of doing that, but I like both of those so far. And those are both online, right? You don't, you just yeah. get a membership, right? Cool. So yeah. Slack and hot schedules. Slack, S-L-A-C-K. And what is a one book that's a must read that will make you a better person or just restaurant owner? Well, I think for a restaurant owner, I would say Danny Myers setting the table was uh, one of my is one of my favorites, and I re- I go back to it all the time. I love that book, and um, just for a better person, um, I mean, I read a lot of poetry, <laughs> <laughs> so I recommend thinking deeply. I guess is what I can say is I recommend thinking deeply about things. Awesome. As a rest, as a person, and what was what was the biggest lesson you got from Danny Meyer setting the table? I, I think his approach to hospitality, just that he's willing to go and his his the idea that you have to connect with your guests at a human level, and, and you're never too big to do that. Beautiful. He's and and trying to communicate that to your whole staff. This hyper sense of hospitality that you're that you're really really glad they're there. You appreciate them be giving you their business and that you're willing to do anything within your power, anything possible to make them happy while they're in your care. And I want all of my people to feel that way. And awesome. I feel that way. 
Beautiful. Uh, the next question, uh, what is one piece of technology you've adopted in your restaurant? And how is that influencing operations? So this is more like a tangible, a tangible piece of technology, a POS system or something like a, in the back of house uh, that's helping you be more efficient, communicate better, uh, more profitable. Anything that comes, comes to mind that you can share with us? I mean, we did, we shifted all of our, our restaurants are using Aloha POSs now okay. and we're all on the same POS and that has really, really helped. Beautiful. Uh, and if you just got the news uh, that you'd be leaving this world tomorrow and all the memories of you, your work, your restaurants would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could tie to your name uh, that you know to be true. Uh, for the good of humanity, what would those three pieces of advice be? It's a tough one. For the good of humanity. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I'm reminded of the, you know, um, have the courage to change the things you can and the wisdom to know the difference. Um, love. Uh, I, I, I mean, I think loving, I'm a big believer in loving your fellow man and loving loving your neighbor as yourself. I, I really believe that. And I have to say too, that I am, um, you know, a, a person that loves God. So, I mean, I try to think about that all the time. I know that's like, an, unfortunately our spiritual lives have been captured by uh, political, very difficult political circumstances in our country, but that doesn't mean we can't reclaim them for ourselves. Mm. And so I would hope that that my love for others is as imperfect and crazy as it is has would would come through beautiful and help chef Wida, I've Great had peace I guess I I've think. had <laughs> This has been Eric, a blast. Jeez, that's really hard. <laughs> it is. It is tough. I, I asked the tough questions for a reason. We need. We need to go here. It's totally worth it. Uh, and you've been such a great guest, Chef Wida. Really, I've, I've enjoyed every moment of this. Uh, you really did provide a ton of value. Um, is there anything that, that I didn't ask you? A question I could have asked that you think would have brought more value to this conversation? No, I, I can't think of a. I can't think of a stone left unturned. Awesome. And um, I guess the only thing left to do is to call somebody out. So who is, this is how I found you. This question is how, how I, I found you. So it's a great question to ask. Uh, it's connecting me with so many amazing people. So who's one person you admire uh, in this industry, somebody that you look up to and believe would make a great guest mentor for our listeners. I really admire Tao green who has a uh, crank and boom ice cream here in town. Tao Green, look out! I'm coming out here. I'm going to get you on the show <laughs> and let the folks at home know how can we uh, follow you uh, and pay attention to what you're doing. If we want to continue to learn from you and to see what you're doing online, or maybe we want to come join your team and get mentored by you, what's the best way to connect? You can. I think the best way to connect is to go to weedamichael.com and it'll it's a landing page and it'll show you all the different restaurants and you can go to those individual websites. Um, but you can always follow me on Facebook. I have Wita Mike. I'm Wita Michael on Facebook and on Twitter too, Chef Wita. And um, I'm 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 happy and 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 hopeful that many people do contact us. So uh, all are welcome. Yeah, you know, one of the the best pieces of, of advice I have for anybody who wants to be great in this industry is go work for somebody who's great uh, and learn those values, learn those habits, learn, just surround yourself with greatness and you will be the average of the five people you 
spend the most of your time with. And you've you've been hanging out with me today in WIDA. So hopefully uh, we've helped you take it up a notch. And WIDA, thank you so much for taking the time to just to make us better and to to share your values with us and to you know to put the your values in front of the numbers and to uh, really be somebody who lives to serve their community. It was such an honor making an example of you. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Oh, thank you, Eric. I appreciate that. (laughs) There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable Chef Wita. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to make us all just a little bit better. And the big takeaway for me in today's episode was the idea of, you know, just providing opportunity, promoting from within and taking care of those around you, whether that's your employees or your community. And Chef Wita, Michael, she, she showed that she has these values by uh basically she 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 went out she had a few failures and she learned from her failures that it's best to promote from within and to really provide opportunity and i feel like the the topic of impact came up today and i think that's how you make a big impact is to really when you get to that point of existing to serve others and realizing that you yourself do best when you serve others uh and you attract greatness onto yourself when you do that and uh i think that for me, it seemed like that's when things really started to take off for her and her business when she started providing those opportunities for her team, mentoring, developing, getting out of the way uh, and promoting other people, bringing on people who are better at certain things than than she was. And that's really where you start to, to grow is when you recognize the greatness in others and extract the greatness in others and leverage that greatness uh, so you can all win. So you can create those win-win situations. Uh, and I think that's what I got from this conversation. I hope you guys picked up on that too. And like always, guys, please do reach out to me, Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. If you can think of somebody who would make a great guest on the show, or if you have a challenge, a topic you'd like me to get into, I'll go get an expert. We'll learn together. Uh, but you guys have to reach out to me first. Uh, you can email me again. That's Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com or Facebook slash restaurant unstoppable and Instagram, Twitter, Eric catch uh, keep those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming. They help validate what I'm doing and they help with my ranking, uh, which really just helps help, helps the show get discovered. And I am accepting donations. Every little bit helps. You can head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash support to learn more about that. But the best way to support this show is literally just sharing it. Tell anybody and everyone you know aspiring to be great in the industry about this resource, no matter if you're a veteran or a newbie, like there's something to be learned in these interviews and you have the power to surround yourself with incredible people and you are the average of those you spend most of your time with. You can hit play and spend time with some of the best minds in the industry. It's very powerful. So please help me spread the word about this podcast by sharing it with anybody you know who wants to be great. That's it for today. Thank you guys for sticking around this long and listening to me just rant and rave. I appreciate and love you all. Until next time, peace out.